0: Colossians chapter one, and I have the Matthew exam ready, and uh, we're going to have it available on Google Drive, just as we have the others, and this exam should be written by next week, so we'll give you till next week Wednesday, so you have a full week, but it'll cover the first seven chapters of Matthew, and. Uh, By the grace of God, I'm going to remember at the end of this class to give you the questions. I'll just walk you through them quickly as I usually do at the end of our um, classes there on the campus. Uh, So maybe the chat section usually fails by the end of the lesson, but somebody please feel free to remind me as we go. All right, Colossians chapter 1. And We'll be starting in verse 19. We'll read there, and then we'll get going. Let's pray first, so if you would, bow your heads with me, let's ask God for help. Father, thank you for the privilege of once again um, gathering around our devices so that we can learn the Word of God. I pray that, Lord, you'd please be with us now. Open our hearts, our minds. Give us the understanding, the knowledge. Lord, uh, use this again tonight as yet another building block in preparing and equipping men and women to go and serve you for the rest of their lives. Father, this is a wonderful privilege. Help us not n- never to take it for granted. Please guide us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, Colossians 1 and verse 19. So we've been reading about Christ, verses 15 down to 18. You remember it described Him as the Creator. He is the express image of the invisible God. He should have the preeminence in all things. Verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. That can be understood in no other way other than Jesus was deity. He was God manifest in the flesh. I've never heard any other explanation for that verse. We're going to see a similar verse in chapter 2 and verse 9, so I'm going to reserve comment until then. But in Jesus, uh, you have the fullness of the Godhead. at Verse 20, And having made peace through the blood of His cross. Now, when it says made peace, it would be a correct idea to say peace between God and sinners. That's true. The blood of the cross performs that function, but it also created a peace between the two people groups that God sees the world as. There's Jews, and then there's everybody else, there's Gentiles. And there was the barrier between Jews and Gentiles until the cross of Christ. There at the cross, the ordinances, the Jewish ordinances were nailed to that cross And no longer do you have to become Jewish in order to be called one of the people of God. So it brought Jews and Gentiles together. I'm going to show you a cross-reference for this in just a moment. It says in verse 20, "...having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven." This verse, the end of this verse, is used sometimes by some preachers to say that Jesus' blood can save not only human beings, but even angels, even the devil, one day. There are some people that think this verse indicates a universal salvation, that everybody's going to be saved, even the devil, will be forgiven because of the blood that Jesus shed. Uh, Some people limit that. They don't go as far as to say the devil is going to end up saved, but they they do say that angels can be saved through the blood of the cross. And and they get that from the last phrase, things in heaven. They say that must be angels. Take your Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 1. I do not think that there's any reason, any biblical reason to believe that the blood of Christ covers the sins of angels. We do know that angels can sin, they can fall. This is a very clear point in many places in the Bible, but there are no verses that make a clear statement about the salvation of angels. In 1 Timothy 5, you have a mention of elect angels, so there are specially chosen angels, but that's all that it says. It doesn't explain anything about angels receiving Christ or trusting Christ like we would. There's a verse in Hebrews 2, verse number 16, which by the way is the attendance code for tonight, Hebrews 2, verse 16. That verse says that when Jesus came, he was made like unto his brethren. That is, he took not on the nature of angels, but the nature of of Abraham. He, He came down as a Jew, a human Jew that verse would seem to indicate that when Jesus came and died, His death, He tasted death for all men. But He didn't have the nature of angels, so it appears that the sacrifice Christ made would not be applicable to angels. So the Bible, I think, leans heavily uh, against the idea of of angels being saved. Ephesians 1 and verse 10, I think this is a better cross-reference to shed light on what we've read. He says here in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times. So, down through history, we've gone through various periods or dispensations. But one day, when when God is finished working through the body of Christ, then the resurrection, the rapture is going to take place. I believe that's what we're dealing with here. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things... In Christ, So anything that is in Christ will be gathered together. Now we know from other verses, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, for instance, the rapture is referred to as, as us being gathered together with Christ. But notice the end of the verse. In verse 10 it says, "...both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him." So he says, "...all things in heaven and on earth." But if it says things, how could it be referring to people? That's that's the the big question mark that comes on this. You might remember this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Now, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We are referred to as a creature creature right? As, as cre- part of God's creation. So in that sense, it would be correct to say a thing. We call other creatures things. So when spoken of in that context, to use the word things, I, I realize that may not be uh, proper in, in other conversations, but in the way it's used here, I don't think it's much of an issue. Anything that's in Christ. So there are people right? They're new creatures in Christ. Some of them are in heaven. By the time Paul wrote Ephesians, by the time he wrote Colossians, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians that had already lost their lives through martyrdom or natural causes, and they were already in heaven. And then there's obviously Christians still on the earth, still alive. And we see the two groups mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, The dead in Christ rise first, and then we which are alive and remain. So the dead in Christ, their souls are already in heaven. But we which are alive and remain, we're down here on the earth. So I believe that's the distinction Paul is making in these two verses. Come back to Colossians 1 and verse 20. Now, if it seemed a bit far-fetched to say things refers to new creatures... Just let your eyes slip down to verse 23 quickly. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, where have I, Paul, made a minister. So I don't think we're stretching things at all to say that things refers to the creatures that are being preached to, and it's the creatures that are under heaven, not, not the angels in heaven. All right, so verse 21, and you. So the blood of the cross, the blood that was shed there at the cross, is sufficient to reconcile any sinner to God. The souls of of those that had already died, right? Old Testament saints even might fall into that category because the blood reconciled them. And then things in earth, that's the people still alive. The blood is able to bring these people into the presence of God. And then, Paul does what a lot of preachers do, right? We talk about salvation, we present the gospel in a very general manner. We talk about how Jesus died for sinners. We talk about how he has changed thousands, millions of lives. And then we draw, we, we, we take that offer and we direct it straight at our audience. And we say, now what God has done for everybody else, he can do for you. I think that's what Paul's doing here. Things in heaven, things on earth, all these people have been reconciled to God by the blood, even you, you Colossians. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind in your mind by wicked works, yet now have you reconciled. So Paul says the blood that reconciled everyone else had even reached you Colossians. You wicked Colossians. Even you guys that used to be enemies of God, you have now been reconciled. You might notice that at the end of verse 21, there's no punctuation mark. I don't know if you pay much attention to that. Some years ago, I had a, well, he's still my friend, Brother Joe Costa. He's a pastor in Long Island, New York. And we had a long conversation about these verses that, that have no punctuation at the end. There are seven of them in, it, in the King James Bible. I've never checked it in other versions. Uh, but it's interesting that, that there would be seven times that that happens because you know the number seven is, is a special number. And what he did is he, looked, he found all seven of them, and then he took the last word of each of those verses, and it actually spelled out a, a bit of a message. So I'm just putting that out there for food for thought. I'm not saying that any special doctrines come from it. I'll let you find the, the other six, right? Uh, Verse 22, it says, "...in the body of his flesh through death." So that's what it took to reconcile him. "...to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight." Now, we've got to see the bigger picture when we read these verses. The reason Jesus shed his blood and gave Himself as an atonement for our sins, listen to this, was not just to get us to heaven. Too many people have that thought in their mind. I get saved. I'm going to heaven. That's all there is to it. There is much more to it. There's so much more. Jesus, when He shed that blood, yes, it was to reconcile you to God and allow you access into the presence of God. But... He wants you to stand before Him holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. He wants you to stand at the judgment seat of Christ with confidence and not be ashamed. And because of the blood of Christ, we are able to not only be saved, but live a sanctified and holy life. There is a difference between being justified and being holy, there is a difference. Look at verse twenty-three. If you want, if you want to be holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight, then you need verse twenty-three. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? The expectation that the gospel provides for us is that not only do we have eternal life and we get to live with God forever, but we can stand there heads held high, unashamed of how we served Him, knowing that we fulfilled the will of God to the best of our abilities while we were on the earth. That, Paul says, don't move away, don't give up on that hope. So he continues on, "...which ye have heard," so it was explained to them, "...and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven." So you Colossians, you are under the same system that everybody else is is under that's heard this message. "...whereof I, Paul, am made a minister." Now, verse 22 and 23, guys, it's, I believe, incredibly important to make that distinction between being just saved and being saved and sanctified. There are a lot of people, I believe, that are going to get to heaven and find out there, whew, there was so much more to the plan of God. There was so much more power in the blood of Christ that I did not recognize, I did not utilize while I was on the earth. And if if someone does not continue in the faith, if they move away from The the plan of God, the will of God, the hope of the gospel, they move away from the purpose that God has for us. He saved us for a purpose, not just to keep us out of hell, not just so we could sit on a cloud and strum a harp and be in the presence of God. He saved us so He could clean us up and use us and conform us to the image of Christ. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, then you one day will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and receive a reward or rewards. If you move away from that, it doesn't say you go to hell. You'll still be standing at the judgment seat of Christ in the presence of God. And the Bible says if any man suffer loss, it says he himself shall be saved, right? He's still saved, but you lose all the rewards. You lose that confidence, 1 John 2, 28. And you end up with shame. And that's what we want to avoid. Uh, take your Bible, look at Revelation 22. I want to show you the distinction between being justified and being holy, right? If somebody's justified, then he's saved. But that doesn't automatically make his life holy. That comes through, as we've learned in Romans this, this past Sunday. Romans 6, you have to yield to the Holy Spirit. Yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That's a choice we have to make daily. Revelation 22, and let's get verse 11. Watch how God breaks this down. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. Now, those of you that have had discipleship, you know the context. We're dealing with somebody or or people in eternity, right? Once you get to eternity, you can't change the way you entered into eternity. So if you enter eternity as an unjust man, that is, you're not saved, then that's how it's going to be for eternity. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. Do you see the two categories? You can be, and I think we all know people like this, don't we? that are, uh, they are lost, but they live a fairly clean life. They don't, they don't run around doing horrible, outward, disgusting, abominable sins, right? They do try their level best to be good people, but they haven't put their faith in Christ. They have not accepted the payment that He made, so they are unjust. But there's a, that, then you can take a step down and, and go out and live that horribly outward, wicked life like the, I think of the prodigal son. Anytime I, I think of filthy, right? Out there in the pig pen. Wasted his life with riotous living. So there's different levels to that. Look at the next part. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. You say, what's that? It's the opposite of unjust. It's just. He is justified. He has been declared or made righteous. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. Look at the next category. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Do you see how he separates it? You can be righteous, washed in the blood, but you may not have reached the level of holiness. So if we wanted to rank it, right? Holy, righteous, unjust, filthy. You choose how you want to enter eternity. Now, if you apply the gospel... If you continue in the faith of the gospel, the plan, the whole plan, then one day you end up unreprovable, unblameable. God can't, God cannot point the finger at you and say, hey, you should have known better. I told you this. I gave you grace for that. You want to be able to say, God, I, I did the best I could by your grace. Now, come back to Colossians 1 and verse twenty. At the end of 23, Paul says, Where have I made a minister? Verse 24, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. That's an interesting verse. If I'm understanding it correctly, Paul is saying that the body of Christ should be experiencing a certain level of suffering. And not enough Christians were enduring that suffering. So he says, I'm, I am having to do extra. I am suffering extra to fill up that which is uh, behind. So there should have been more people taking a stand for Christ, which would have led to persecution, which would have led to suffering. But there were obviously people that buckled under the pressure of persecution, and therefore, more and more people, right? It put more pressure on the few believers that did remain steadfast and didn't um, give up the faith. Paul says, I'm filling up what other people are lacking. Uh, You can just quickly, I'll read it to you, but Acts 9 and verse 15, when Paul got saved, I'm sorry, verse 16, Paul got saved. Ananias was sent to uh, tell Paul something about the will of God, and uh, the Lord was showing Ananias, telling Ananias what he needed to say. Acts nine sixteen, the Lord told Ananias, for I will show him, Paul, how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew when he got into the ministry, when he got into the Christian life, he was going to suffer. Now, Paul, right, he he persecuted the church. So in his mind, I'm sure he figured, I deserve this. I deserve this. Let me ask you, though, do you deserve any better? I don't. I I do not think that what we're reading gives us any sense that we need to go out and purposely put ourselves in harm's way and, and make our lives more difficult than they need to be. I don't want anybody to develop a martyr's complex from what we're reading and looking at. But I do believe that there are a lot of opportunities to stand for Christ. And we might get laughed at, mocked, and in that way suffer persecution. And who knows, the way the world's going, the day might come where it costs us even more. But the Bible says if anyone will live godly, right? If any man shall live godly in Christ Jesus, he shall suffer persecution I wonder sometimes if the reason we don't feel more of that is because our standard for godliness is not quite what the New Testament expects of it. Uh, Acts 20, in verse 23, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, and he's talking about going to Jerusalem. He says, I don't know what's going to happen there, except, verse 23, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions Abide me. He says, that, that's one thing I know for sure. No matter where I go, somebody's not going to like it. Somebody's going to attack me. My life's going to be at risk. He says, and this is the right attitude, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. He says, but I want to finish my course with joy and uh, testify the gospel of the grace of God. So that's the attitude we also want to develop. Now, back in Colossians 1, in verse, at the end of 24, verse 24, he says, which is his body, uh, or I'm sorry, for his body's sake, which is the church. Verse 25, where have I made a minister? So he is a servant of the church. He is there to build it up, to maintenance the church, to take care of it. If, if there a problem comes into it, he wants to deal with that problem. Verse 25, where have I made a minister? According to the dispensation of God. Now Dispensation, the way it's used here, is not a time period, right? The word dispensation can mean that. In Ephesians 1.10, we saw it earlier, I believe it did mean that. But in this case, the dispensation is God dispensing something, giving something out. Like when you go to the chemist, you might see above the counter there, dispensary. That's where they give the medicine out. According to the dispensation of God. So Paul's a minister according to what God has given him. Verse 25, which is given to me for you to fulfill the Word of God. What's he getting at? What needs to be fulfilled? In the Old Testament, God had made promises that He would bring other sheep into His fold. It wouldn't just be Jews, but Gentiles also would be included in the kingdom. Jesus also mentioned this in John chapter 10, but there was a prophecy in Isaiah about that happening, and some of the other prophets as well. So Paul sees his ministry as par- at least partially fulfilling what God had promised, and that is to bring the Gentiles in. Now we know Plan A, right? Plan A was for Jesus to come as the Messiah, the Jews receive him. And if they had received Him, Jesus still needed to die, be buried, and rise again. That was all prophesied. It had to be fulfilled. And then the tribulation time, that was also prophesied. It had to happen. So after the resurrection of Christ, there would have been a seven-year period of tribulation, and troubles, and so forth. And after that time, Jesus would have come back and established His kingdom. And all the nations of the world, Gentiles, would have flowed into that kingdom and been under the, the, the uh, rulership of, of Christ as king of kings. So that was plan A. But, of course, the Jews rejected Christ. So plan B, let's get Paul, make him a vessel, send him to the Gentiles, and give them this, God revealed this plan B, this, this body of Christ, and he said, Paul, you go tell them how I'm going to operate now for these 2,000 years of a church age. Now, he didn't tell them how long, but he, th- tell them how we're going to operate now. We're going to see in Colossians 2 that the body of Christ is a special, it, it, does, it does occupy a special place on the calendar, on, on, the, on the map of God as he's planning out history. So verse 26, He says, even the mystery, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So God had promised to bring the Gentiles in, and as best we can tell from the Old Testament, that would have happened through the Messiah conquering the Jewish enemies, and then the nations of the world flow into Jerusalem and fall in submission to him. It was never made known in the Old Testament that one day God would elevate Jew and Gent- or elevate the Gentiles to be on the same level as Jew and they'd all be one in the body of Christ. That's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It was hid in, in those past ages. Verse 27, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the reason I have this expectation of dwelling in the presence and glory of God forever and watching Him work in my life, I I have those expectations because of Christ living in me. Now this was a mystery in the Old Testament. The idea of the Messiah living inside of people spiritually, right? That was not revealed in the Old Testament, but now it is. Now we know, right? We have the benefit of hindsight. But... Put yourself in in the shoes of a first century Christian. This is all brand new information. Paul is saying, guys, I I want you to know how special this is. God has sent me to you, and I don't mind suffering for it. I'm happy to do that. But I I want you guys to know just how rich this mystery is, that God has included you into His people and is now working in you He wanted them to appreciate the sacrifice that Christ had to make, His his blood on the cross to bring them into this plan. In verse 28, "...whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom." Now, in all wisdom, right, to do it smartly. That is, we don't just go around preaching and teaching our own thoughts. We use the information that God's given us. We're going to see in chapter 2, Paul will explain in much more depth how all wisdom is found in Christ, in this plan for the body of Christ. So Paul says we preach and we warn and we teach every man. Why? Verse 28, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. What's the plan? Not just to get them saved. Paul, he could have said that. He didn't. He says, I preach, I teach, and I warn people not only so that we can get them to heaven, but so that we can get them to heaven in good condition, in a good spiritual condition. We want them to stand there complete, having completed the will of God, having achieved the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We don't, right? Now, this isn't far off from what Jesus said. Be ye therefore Perfect, right? Matthew 5, verse 48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Jesus expects this of His disciples, not just to be, not just to make a a verbal commitment. I'll follow you with us wherever you go. Great. That's wonderful. I'm glad you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but there's going to be a cost involved, right? We learned that last night in Matthew. It's not going to be easy. It falls perfectly with what Paul is saying here. Verse 29, whereunto I also labor. So, whereunto? Unto that plan. I work towards that goal. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. Paul is aware of the fact that he provides the vessel. God provides the strength. Paul, he realizes he has a choice in the matter. He has a free will decision to make. He could, he could uh, do it his way. He could try in his own efforts. He could do this with the wrong attitude, but he says, you know what? I, I recognize everything that God's given me, the responsibility, the grace, the knowledge. Paul could speak multiple languages. He says, I know I'm equipped to do this, and I want to use every tool that God has put in my toolbox, and I want to work. I want to labor for Him. Uh, This harkens back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So I think that verse goes nicely with what we've read at the end of Colossians 1. All right, Uh, Colossians chapter 2. I'd like to give you an outline for the chapter. I do not think we'll finish it tonight. Far too much information in it. If I were to give this chapter a title, I would call it Complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. And then I don't have any special alliteration for the the rest of the points here, but that would be the title, Complete in Christ, and then point one. This is verses 1 to 7, God's plan is enough. I think that's the best way to sum it up. God's plan is enough. And then verses 8 and 9, philosophies don't add to Christ. And we'll talk more about philosophies when we get to verse 8. Verses 10 to 17, ordinances don't add to Christ talking about religious rituals. Ordinances don't add to Christ. And then the next point, point four, spiritual beings don't add to Christ. Specifically in this chapter, angels is what's in focus. And we'll see this in in verse 10, verse 15, but also verses 18 and 19 focuses a little more directly on it. And then the last point, commandments of men, man-made commandments don't add to Christ, verses 20 to 23. So philosophies, ordinances, angels, man-made commandments, they cannot add on to what Christ has done in your life. You have all you need in Christ. You don't need those other things in order to make you a more spiritual, more acceptable person in God's sight. So chapter two and verse one, he says, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, that was a town right up the road from Colossae, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now, this verse is the strongest verse in the, in the book of Colossians to show that Paul had not yet met these people in the flesh. Uh, I, I, I hesitate to say it's definitive. There might be. The slight chance that they had seen Paul's face and that Paul's referring to others that haven't seen him. So I'll leave that possibility open. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the book, it appears as if Paul had never been to Colossae and he did not start this church, but rather he's heard many things about them through various messengers and he has this conflict. He he wants to reach out to them. He wants to go the scenes. He wants to go to all these other people and places and help them. But and you get into the ministry, you'll feel this. You can just take a map of Africa, take a map of the world, put your finger on it, and there's a need, right? It, it's one of the most difficult things you'll ever do if God has called you into the ministry is to figure out and determine where exactly does he want me to perform this ministry. I know in my life that was one of the greatest struggles that I've ever experienced in the prayer closet was trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to do with my life now? He told me full-time ministry, but where? Do you want me to be a pastor? Do you want me to travel around America and just preach as an evangelist, what they refer to as an evangelist. You want me to be a missionary? Boy, I, oh, that was the conflict. There's a need everywhere, but I can't be everywhere. So how do I choose which place to go to? So he says, guys, I want you to know that I, I have that burden on my heart, but I can't be everywhere at once. But he is praying for them, and this is what he would like to see in them. Verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted. He knows that these believers in all these places are suffering persecution, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. What provides comfort for suffering saints? Other saints. Other like-minded saints. They they know how it feels to suffer for Christ's sake. And maybe it's not even persecution, right? Maybe it's just hey, I know how it feels to be on lockdown and to be going a little stir-crazy in your home. I, I know how you feel. So knit together in love, appreciating and caring about that other person. Now, love goes a long way to unifying people, right? Knit together in love. Love unifies when it is reciprocated. When love is not reciprocated, then it can actually drive people apart. And don't want to get into a long discussion of that, but if you want to have a true, strong, long-lasting unity, you're going to need more than just love. You also need truth. So, look at the rest of the verse. Being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. He says, I want you guys to be on the same page as it pertains to your understanding of what God is doing, what what God has revealed, the acknowledgement in the verse, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. He says, guys, I want you to stick together. You're going through a lot of trouble, I get it. Stick together, care about, take care of each other, and stay on the same page doctrinally. That's where you'll find the strongest unity, not just when people are loving each other. That's necessary. But you also need to have a like-minded belief system. If not, it's going to be difficult to have perfect unity. So, he says at the end of verse 2, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Now, I've, I've heard people explain this as three different mysteries. And they'll take you to a verse and say, see, here's God." providing a mystery or revealing a mystery, and then another one the Father reveals, and then another one Christ reveals. I I don't see this as three separate mysteries. If you look in the verse to the acknowledgement of the mystery, singular, of God, comma, and of the Father. So you would... I understand why people think of it as plural, but... <laughs> the singular use of the word mystery, right? If these, these are three separate mysteries, Paul could have pointed that out. I believe there's one mystery in view, and we've already touched on it back in chapter 1, verse 27. right? This mystery that included the Gentiles being part of the body of Christ and Christ dwelling in them, of the indwelling Christ. So I believe that there's one mystery in view. However, there are three aspects to that one mystery. And that's why I believe Paul mentioned these three separate distinct, um, can I say, persons or or references to God. So let's think of it this way. There's the God aspect to this mystery. That is, God is sovereign. He's eternal. When you talk about God in that general sense, you're talking about the sovereign eternal being who has always existed and brought everything else into existence. So how does that affect the mystery? God made this plan for the body of Christ before the foundation of the world. And this plan, this purpose of His, cannot be undone. It will happen. The Holy Spirit will perform this work until the day of Jesus Christ. So that's the sovereign, eternal aspect of the mystery. Now there's the father aspect. In order for this mystery to be possible, the father had to send his son. Now we understand that the father is God. We understand that the son is God in human form. We, we understand that, but it's a different aspect of God, right? Now we're focusing in, you remember last night telescoping, we zoom in a little bit more at one specific, uh, specific facet of God. That is God as a father, had to send his son and allow him, right? The father guided Christ. He guided Jesus all through his life like a father would, told him what to do, commanded him to say and do things, and then allowed him to die. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. So that's the father aspect. And then there's uh, the Christ aspect. What, what is that? That's the other side of the father son relationship. This is the, the part of God, the Word becoming flesh, so that he, and he humbled Himself to do so, right? He was equal with God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but He humbled Himself, made Himself of no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, death, even the death of the cross. So that's the Christ aspect. Right? The Father can't die, but Christ, because that is God in human form, that, that aspect, that there we can see death coming in. So I, I believe it's three different perspectives, if you will, about this one mystery. Right? We had to have the Father sending the Son. We had to have the Son sacrificing Himself so that this plan could work. Without the blood of the cross, then there is no plan. Now, verse 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the wisdom and knowledge that you need in order to live a fulfilling, rich, satisfying, God-pleasing life. All of that wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. Specifically, if we can narrow that down even further, it's found in in this plan that God made before the foundation of the world for the Holy Spirit to work in you and conform you. Everything you need to know is there in Christ. Now, the reason Paul is pointing this out, as we'll see in the rest of the chapter, evidently, this church was under some pressure to forsake the simplicity that is in Christ and start following these other paths, Maybe I should worship angels, and maybe I need extra angelic help. Maybe I should adopt Judaism, right? The Judaizers pressuring people to take on this extra religious ritual. Maybe I need to listen to the philosophers. Jesus, you know, he was a, he was a, a, a good teacher, but these other guys, Plato, Aristotle, Philo, maybe I should listen to what they had to say. And there was this pressure to adopt and take on all these other things. And Paul is saying, guys, in Christ you have all that you need. And to that I say, amen. That's true. Is there wisdom outside of Christ? Well, not true wisdom. (laughs) There there is in James 3. You can read about the wisdom of this world. right? But godly wisdom, wisdom that brings forth the right kind of fruit, true wisdom, if I can say it like that, that's found in Christ. You don't need an outside source for that. So, verse number four. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. So he says somebody's going to come around, and probably already had been coming around, and talking to the Colossians, using big fancy words, making making special pleas to these people to say, guys, you've got to, what you have in Christ is fine, but you need to add to that. Paul's saying, guys, don't be caught up in their fancy sales pitch. This is happening a lot in the last days, right? People having itching ears. They go to YouTube. They go all over the Internet. And, man, they they expose themselves to all these extra-biblical ideas. And if you're not grounded firmly in the Word of God, there's a high likelihood that you end up horribly confused. And instead of Christ and the Bible being enough, right? And listen, if you have Christ and the Bible, you're going to have a local church because that was instituted in the Bible. But if you just stick with what you have there, you have enough. The idea that you have to have some special code to understand the book of Revelation, figure out the mark of the beast and all that stuff, you, you need to believe what it says. You need to stay faithful doing what has been clearly revealed. Don't get caught up with all the enticing words. Don't get tricked, right? That's beguile you. Don't let anybody trick you, make you think that Christ isn't enough. Now, there are a couple ways that uh, the world will operate with this. They'll come to you with philosophy. They'll come to you with science. Paul warned Timothy about science, falsely so-called. And then there's... Philosophy. We're going to read in verse eight. Paul warns about that. And you, if you ever want to find the enticing words, those big fancy words that really sound impressive, you, you got to be careful about them. I, let me let me give you a few names when it comes to philosophy. Right? If you think of uh, in ancient times, Epicurus, the Stoics, and then scooting up of uh, several centuries, Freud, Jung. Nietzsche, Hume, Christopher Hitchens I think would fall under that category, Sam Harris, I believe he would also fall into the category of a philosopher. These are famous atheists if you are not familiar with them. And then on the scientific side you might know Bill Nye the science guy, Richard Dawkins, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, all of these people that I've just mentioned, it's it's not that everything they say or think is wrong. right? These men here at the end viable scientists. They're not stupid. They do understand how various natural things work. The problem is when they start taking a few scientific facts and philosophy, especially when it comes to psychology and psychiatry, they, they take a few observed behaviors and then they start extrapolating. They start building on a story to what they've observed. That's where it gets dangerous. And if you're not firmly grounded in the Bible, you get caught up with, with how they take an established truth and then carry it five steps, 10 steps, 20 steps too far. Right? Now, we should know to be careful for that because Paul, in the book of Romans, he's been walking us through that problem, how people could take a solid truth about grace and go too far with it. So back to this chapter now. In verse number 5, And though I be absent in the flesh, again, makes it sound as if he's never been there, but again, maybe it just means that he's not there with them presently. Though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit. So, guys, I, this, isn't, this isn't a statement that Paul's spirit has somehow left his body and is in Colossae or anything like that. You understand what he means by this. He says, guys, I'm not there with you, uh, physically, but my heart is there with you. I care about you. My th- you're in my thoughts. So in, this, in that sense, he's, he's with them. Join and beholding your order. Now, Paul is not able to physically behold what they're doing. He can't see it with his eyes, but he can see what they're doing through the reports that were constantly coming to him. And he was enjoying what he was, quote unquote, seeing In them, uh, join in beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So they've been pressurized by all these other influences and they hadn't caved to it. And Paul said, Now I'm so glad to hear this. You guys please stick with it. Help each other to stay steadfast. Verse 6 As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now several years ago, I was witnessing to a man in Missouri. He was a member of the Church of Christ, and we don't have a lot of that here, but the Church of Christ believes that you must be baptized in water in order to be saved. And him and I were going back and forth, and he was showing me verses about baptism. I was showing him verses about how faith only saves, uh, faith alone. after several other verses, you would think things like Ephesians two verses eight and nine, right? Titus three, five, there's some very Romans four, verse five. Clear verses about it. I actually it came to my mind to put these two verses together. I showed him this, and then actually what I, I showed him first was Second Corinthians five verse seven. And I in Second in Corinthians five seven, you probably know the verse, for we walk by faith not by sight, right? We walk by faith. So, I asked the man, I said, what about this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 7? How are we supposed to walk in the Christian life, by faith or sight? He said, by faith. I said, okay, clear enough. That I said, neither of us will have any problems with that. I said, now, baptism, can you see it? He said, yes. I said, okay. So, we don't walk by that, right? He said, "That's right." I said, "Okay." Now back to Colossians two, verse six: "As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him." I said, "Now, how are you supposed to walk in Him?" He said, "By faith." And I said, "Well, then, how do you receive Christ Jesus the Lord?" And, and he responded, "He said, by faith, I guess." And that was that was where our conversation ended. I, I don't know whatever happened with him, if he made any decisions or not, but. At least the point was, was driven home. We receive Christ by faith, faith alone, and that is precisely how we walk. Now, God, as if I can jump back to verse 2 just for a moment, the acknowledgement of this mystery. When you think about God revealing a mystery, right? the plan for the body of Christ, the idea that Jesus was the Son of God, the idea that God that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, no one could have figured that out with their natural minds. No one would have looked at Jesus, even doing the miracles that he did. They they would have said, What manner of man is this? They would have had, they would have been correct to consider maybe this is the creator come down in human form. But they wouldn't have known that for certain had not Christ made statements and revealed the fact that He was God come down in human form. Jesus made statements to that effect and that's how the disciples knew that He was divine. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed a special relationship with the Father. The idea of the body of Christ, how would anybody know that that existed if God didn't tell us? Right. These things must be revealed to us by God. The efficacy, the the power of the blood of Christ, how it affects us. We wouldn't know that the blood of a dead Jew hanging on a cross washes away our sins if God didn't reveal that to us. We wouldn't look at that and figure it out by sight. God has to reveal that. Believing right? what God said, that's faith. So when God says that blood that was shed on the cross, that's no ordinary blood. That's the blood of my Son, In Acts 20, verse 28, it's the blood of God and it purchases the church. It it paid for your redemption and you can be saved through that. That is a revelation. You have to believe what God has revealed, then you can be saved. Now, how do you live? How do you walk in Christ? By doing the same thing. All right, God, what's the next step? I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Now what do you want me to do? He says, okay, now I want you to be sanctified. I want you to live the right life. I want you to help others. Love, uh, joy, peace, gentleness, good. And all of that comes into view. Right? We walk by what's been revealed. So verse 7, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. Now, that's old English. We would say established in the faith. So the faith, that's the set of of doctrines revealed to the body of Christ. That's the faith. And established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. I want to make several comments about this. Rooted and built up in Him. Now, I'm just going to throw this out here. I don't think the chat section is working now. and That's fine. You don't have to write it in. You can if you'd like but there are two verses that speak of the foundation, a proper foundation for a Christian's life. There's one where Christ said, you need to build your house on a solid rock. And he said, my sayings is that solid rock. I I could give you the verse, but I wanna see if any of you know it, you can put it into the chat section, comment section, whatever you call it. But then there's another verse that speaks of a foundation. Paul said, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now again, if you know that verse, maybe you can put it into the comments. So we have the foundation, which is what? Christ and His words. Those two things are inseparable. They go together. The Word and the Word. right? They they work together. Hey, the chat section is working. And yes, 1 Corinthians 3.11, that's the one that says Christ is the foundation. What about that other one where Jesus said His sayings provides that solid rock? Now, we are to be established, right? In order for that, we, we have to have a solid foundation. That foundation is Christ and His Word. So, we want the Jesus of the Bible. We don't want the Jesus of our imagination. We want the Jesus of the Bible. Matthew seven twenty four. 24 it just came through. Very good. Yeah, Matthew seven twenty four. that's the sayings of Christ. Foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11, that's Jesus Himself as the foundation. Now, watch verse 7. I, I've never noticed this before. Today was the first day I've ever seen this. Rooted. Rooted. That's like a plant, right? A plant, the roots go into the ground. They go beneath the surface, yes? That's rooted, deep roots. That stabilizes a tree that stabilizes the plant having good solid roots that provides the you know sort of the nourishment and all that under the ground beneath the surface rooted and built up in him building up there paul uses two different illustrations a farming illustration a gardening illustration rooted and built up and, and that's a, a different illustration about being a wise master builder. If you read 1 Corinthians 3, you'll see both illustrations there. Paul says, one man sows, another man waters. One man plants, another man waters. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Right? 1 Corinthians 3, I think that's verse 8 or 9 right there. So both things come into play, rooted. Deep roots into the ground beneath the surface, built up. You have a solid foundation, and then the building goes upward, right? The bricks go one at a time, and they go up and up and up. That's above the surface, rooted and built up. Part of your Christian life is inward. Part of it is outward. Both things need to be solid. It's not enough to be solid in what you believe in your heart and not be living it out outwardly. You have to be established in the faith in that you not only believe the right thing, but you do the right thing. I've never seen that in verse 7 before, but that, I, I believe that is absolutely consistent with everything else that you read in Paul's epistles. There's another verse like this. It, it, I say like it, indirectly connected. Revelation 22:16. 16, it talks about, well, Jesus said it Himself. I am the root and offspring of David... And as i saw this today it just triggered that verse in my mind the root and the fruit the root and the offspring so david came from jesus as the creator and then jesus came from david in his physical lineage so there's the both the beneath and the upward version of it there but as i say here there's part of your christian life below the surface part of it above the surface rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught You need someone to teach you. This is discipleship. This is what it's about. This is is why we have a local church. Is so that older believers can help newer believers get established. That's why we put the emphasis we do on discipleship. We want them to know what's the plan. How are we supposed to order our steps? And then he says, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Realize what you have in Christ. Realize what an incredible blessing it is to have Jesus and His words. I I think far too often we take for granted just how special it is to not only know Christ, but know the mind of Christ, to have the mind of Christ, to know the plan. Think about this. In Christ, you have the answers to the most difficult questions in life? Why am I here? Right? Don't people ask that? Why am I here? Why is there something rather than nothing? We know the answer to that. Jesus said, the Father seeks true worshipers. We were created to worship God. And if somebody is not worshiping God, they're not fulfilling their created purpose, and they're not going to live a satisfying life. Not completely. What happens when we die? Everybody else is, can only speculate. Jesus can actually offer first-hand experience from the other side of the grave. He went through all the various phases of death. He was overcome by it and then overcame it. And He can tell us all about what happens when we die. Why does it appear that God has forsaken me? Why isn't God helping me? You can find the answer to that in Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? These are serious questions that, that people have been asking for millennia now. The sufferings of Jesus answers the question. It provides the answer. Yes, sometimes bad things happen to good people, but ultimately righteousness will win. Ultimately, God will recompense the righteous for their deeds and the wicked for theirs. Eventually, things get balanced out and made right. We have all these answers in Christ. You don't get them anywhere else. No other philosophy, no other religion, just Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 8. You know what? I'm going to stop there because chapter 2 and verse 8, I want to talk about philosophy a little bit and I don't want to rush that. So we're going to stop there for tonight. We'll pick it up next time there. I want to give you quickly the questions for the Matthew exam. Now, please remember you have the Galatians exam that you need to write, and that is due next Wednesday. So is this exam. Both exams due next Wednesday. Alright, so the Matthew exam. Number one, how does the book of Matthew present Jesus Christ. Remember the four Gospels, each one presents Him differently. How does Matthew present Him? Number two, the genealogy in chapter one goes through which earthly parent of Jesus? Number three, what was the address of the verse quoted by the scribes to show where Christ should be born? This is in Matthew 2, you might remember. Um, but I want the, what is the address of the verse they quoted? So you'll need to give me an Old Testament reference there. Book, chapter, and verse. Number four, approximately how old was Jesus when the wise men presented their gifts to him? Uh, Chapter two gives us an approximation there. Number five, why did John baptize the common man during his ministry? Remember, John's baptism had two purposes one was to reveal Christ as the Messiah, and then I want you to tell me the other reason. Number six, how did John's baptism of Jesus allow him to fulfill all righteousness? I gave you two options. I'll accept either answer. Number seven, what did Jesus use to overcome the wicked one? That's chapter four. Number eight, what is the kingdom of heaven? Guys, short version, brief answer. Number nine, list the eight virtues mentioned in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the blessings, the blessed art thou, blessed is the. So all you need to give me are the virtues mentioned there, meek, meek, uh, hungering after righteousness. You can summarize if you want to a little bit there, but the eight different virtues mentioned. Number 10, why should a disciple turn the other cheek? Number 11, what does it mean to be perfect as the Father in heaven? That's the end of Matthew 5. Number 12, what reward were the hypocrites seeking in chapter 6? Three different times Jesus mentioned what they were looking for. Number 13, what does it mean to have an evil eye? I think that's Matthew six twenty-two. Number 14, according to chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, who is not supposed to judge? You'll find the answer specifically in verse 5. Number 15, give a verse from chapter 7 that proves false prophets can perform miracles. One verse for that in the chapter. Number 16, and the final one, according to Jesus, on what should we build our lives? We mentioned that tonight, so you should know that one. Uh, and then the memory verse, you have one memory verse, that is Matthew 6, verse 33. Okay, so that's all the questions for Matthew. If you guys have any questions about that or what we've covered tonight, please feel free to let me know. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray together, and then I uh, hope, hope that you'll join us again soon. For our next service, Lord, thank you for this privilege tonight to talk about the plan, talk about how you revealed it, how you made it possible, and how that we have everything we need in you. Lord, can I just say that you are satisfying? You have fulfilled, you have gone beyond every expectation that I ever had. And Lord, I find it to be true that in you, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all of anything that I need, I find in you. Lord, help us to help each other, to stick with it, to stay by the stuff even when it gets difficult. Thank you for this time tonight together. Please have your hand on each student now. Let these words, let the seed sink deep into their hearts that they might be rooted and built up. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys have a wonderful night. Moms and dads, tomorrow with your kids, 6 o'clock. The rest of you will see you, I believe, or you'll see me Sunday.